Well, you've probably noticed uh, this morning that we're not in Exodus. And usually when I hop up here, we're going through Exodus. At least we have as of late. So let me just give you a little bit of the plan, so to speak, for the next, Lord willing, few months. So for the next four weeks, we're hoping to go through an Advent series. The, the word Advent means the, uh, the coming and, or the arrival. And so we're going to be looking at four different Psalms that point to our hope in the arrival of Christ. Not only his first arrival, but also his second then, Lord willing, after that, we will jump briefly back to Exodus for one sermon to close out that first kind of third of Exodus, one, chapter 1 through half of 15. And then, Lord willing, we'll jump into a, a brief series in the book of James. And then after that, hopefully we'll go back to Exodus and pick up from there. So that's just the plan. So if you're confused, oh, well, Rob's up there and not, not preaching Exodus, I'm a little confused by that. It's because we're in Advent. Then we'll jump back to Exodus briefly, and then we'll jump into James, and then come back to Exodus. It won't feel too much like whiplash, I assure you, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of context. So today, we're looking at Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is what we would call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points to the Messiah. In fact, Acts, according to Acts 4, if you look at verses 25 and 26, you don't have to jump there right now. But it says that this psalm was written by David. So you, as you read the psalms, you'll see the Psalm 1, a psalm of David or a mictal of David. You'll see these various different things where it says who wrote it. Psalm 2 doesn't say that. However, according to Acts 4, we're told that it was David who wrote this psalm. So we can be confident of that. Now, this, when did this take place? This, this likely was written shortly after the prophet Nathan went to David and told him about this covenant that, that God has assured with him, that there will always be somebody on his throne, that God will establish David's throne forever. And this psalm, Psalm 2, is likely David's response to that news. And as we look at these 12 verses, the overall theme that we're going to see in them is that God's anointed one rules over all nations. God's anointed one rules over all nations. Therefore, honor him as your king. God's anointed one rules over all nations. Therefore, honor him as your king. Now, we all have a figurative throne in our hearts. I've seen sketches of this and plays of this. In fact, I've even participated in a play of this about who's on the throne of your heart. And... We all have this figurative throne of, of whoever we put there. That's, that's the thing that's driving our decisions. That's the thing that we're serving. That's the thing that we're worshiping. And the question this morning is, who is on that throne for you? Who have you placed on that throne? Well, as we look at Psalm 2, I think we're going to see that the text, is, as you look at your bulletin, is going to be broken up into four different sections. Uh, 12 verses, each section is three verses. So the first three verses, we see what the nations do. So if you're following along in your bulletin, these are the blanks. Verses one through three, what the nations do. The next section, verses four through six, is how God responds. How God responds. And then verses seven through nine, what God will do. And then verses 10 through 12, how the nations should respond. So what the nations do, how God responds, what God will do, and how the nations should respond. 
So let's go ahead and look at Psalm 2. If you're using one of the Blue Provided Bibles nearby, that's going to be on page 448. And it actually is going to be helpful for you to have a Bible in front of you every week. Hopefully that's the case. But I'm going to actually have you flip a couple times. So it's going to be extra helpful to have your Bibles in front of you this morning. But Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand what's going on here and help us to live in light of it. Help us to bend our knee to your anointed king. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So that first section there, what the nations do, what is it that they do? Well, it, we're told right there that they rage and plot against God. Why do the nations rage and people's plot in vain? So the, the why there in verse one is essentially asking for what purpose or to what end do they do these things? What purpose could the nations and peoples possibly have for raging and plotting against God? Why do they plan? Why do they imagine? Why do they plot? Why do they scheme for something that's frankly just unachievable? Why are they doing this? It's unattainable. Why? Why are they, why are they continuing in this? If it's vain or if it's unachievable or it's useless, why do they give so much time and so much effort to it? Well, let's, let's try to answer that question. So why do they rage and plot in vain? Well, the answer is because it's in their nature to. As descendants of Adam, and I remember Adam and Eve, God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, and they rejected God. And so as descendants of Adam, we're naturally prone to reject God's authority, just like Adam did. In fact, in Psalm 51, I mean, this is David speaking, and David recognizes this. In Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In Psalm 58, verse 3, David again says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. And so we're naturally prone to go astray from God, to reject his good authority. Speaking of birth, um, those who have ever seen a, a baby born, you recognize that when, when, when that baby's brought into the world, it's grasping for air. And what the doctor does is it pats, it, it pats it on the back a couple times, and then the baby starts crying. But that crying is actually a good thing because it says, hey, the baby's breathing now. 
And just as natural as it is for a baby to grasp for air from the very first moments of life, just as natural as it is for that, it's natural for us to reject God's authority from the earliest moments. We don't like authority in our lives. We try to shake it off. Whether it's God's authority or it's parents or bosses or the speed limit or taxes, we, we just naturally do not like authority. In fact, some of our favorite movies emphasize this theme. For those, how many in here have seen Braveheart? Okay, so there's a scene in Braveheart where William Wallace is, is lying there on the execution table and he's about to be killed by the king's men. And all he needs to do is say one word to be spared, and it's mercy. And they're prodding him. Are you going to say the word? Are you going to say it? And the people start chanting, mercy, mercy. These people want William Wallace to live. They're saying, mercy, mercy. And then he begins to, to try to speak. And the man tells everybody to be quiet. And he says, the prisoner wants to say something. And when he goes to speak, he musters up all of his strength and he yells, freedom. He refuses to submit to the authority of the king and he, he is put to death there. Or, or the, the movie Invictus, it's named after the famous poem. But that famous poem is famous because it resonates with so many of us. You might not know what poem I'm referring to, but as soon as I start reading it here, you're going to know. The poem that ends by saying, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That resonates with so many of us. We get to choose our destiny. Nobody else gets to put oppression over us. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Some of our most memorable songs emphasize the same theme. Leonard Skinner's Free Bird. It's about a guy who wants to be free from any oppression or any authority over him. Frank Sinatra's My Way. It ends like this. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, I did it my way. It's naturally, we, we resonate so much with the idea of shaking off authority, of going about our own way, not kneeling to the authorities that God has placed over our lives. Look, and we naturally desire freedom. We root for Luke Skywalker to destroy the evil empire. We want Frodo and Sam to destroy the ring so that Middle Earth will be freed from Sauron's evil reign. We want Narnia to be freed of the white witch and her cold oppression. And look, I don't think that desiring freedom is a bad thing. So don't, don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. However, it does reveal that we were made for freedom. The problem is that we constantly look to other areas for that freedom. We don't go to the one place where true freedom is found. We go to other places, convincing ourselves that freedom is achieved by shaking off every other authority that's been placed on us, including God's authority. Now, consider what's happening in verses 2 and 3. So who's speaking in verse 3? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, verse two tells us that it's kings and rulers. They've gathered together, they've come together, and they, they're saying, let's, let's burst these bonds. Let's get rid of these cords. Let's shake the authority off of us. And if you think about that, it's kind of silly because these kings and rulers, in their respective domains, 
they're the ones who have the least amount of authority over them. They are the authority in their respective king, kingdoms and nations. And yet even they feel the need to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, to shake themselves free from God's anointed king. And look, in our, in our natural state, we're prone to do the same thing. We have so much freedom, and freedom is a good thing. But in our natural state, we are prone to find, to try to seek true freedom everywhere other than submitting to God. We're inclined to say, get this authority off me. Let me do what I want to do. And look, we may not say that out loud. I think there would actually be very few of us who would, who would say, let me do what I want to do. I don't want the Lord's authority in my life. But we do that with our actions. Never we go contrary to what God commands. So because of our sin, we are all born with an inward desire to throw off all bonds of authority, including God's authority. And yeah, it's a paradox, to be sure. But true freedom actually comes from submitting to authority. I know that seems inverted, but, but true freedom comes from submitting to authority. The question is, which authority? Which authority actually brings about freedom? Well, the answer, I'll just give it to you, is Christ's authority. You see, Lord there. The word Lord in the New Testament, when we're saying that we must follow Christ as Lord and receive him as Savior. That word Lord, it's not just a title. It means something. And it means master or king or authority. Submitting to Christ as my master, as my king, as, as my authority. The one who, when he makes a command, I follow it. And those who experience true salvation are those who submit to Jesus, not only as Savior, but also as Lord. And so when you're alone later today, whether it's on a walk or on a drive, or maybe you're just having a quiet moment in the afternoon, I would encourage you to take a moment just to consider excuse me, the ways in which that you're prone to push against God's authority. We're all wired differently. We all have various different temptations and different desires. Just take a moment to just consider where you might be prone to push against God's authority in your life. If you're confident enough, ask a friend. Ask a friend where they see you pushing against God's authority. Now, Let's notice in verses four through six how God responds. So look at me there in verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we can see right there in, the, in those three verses that God responds in at least three ways. So in verse four, we see that he responds with laughter. In verse 5, with wrath. And in verse 6, he responds with a king. So let's look at verse 4. God responding with laughter. So what does it mean that God laughs and holds them in derision? Does it mean that God is actually laughing out loud in heaven? Well, probably not. However, oftentimes, biblical authors will use language that we understand to convey a deeper point. Um, so, for example, God hiding us in the shadow of his wings doesn't mean that God is, actually has wings. 
or when it says that our names are written on God's hand, doesn't mean that he actually has hands and, and every one of our names are, are physically engraved in there. It's, it's emphasizing, it's using, using language that we can understand to emphasize a deeper point. And so the point that, that David's making here is that the idea of these kings and rulers, the most powerful men on the earth, the idea that they would come together and try to shake off the authority of God to free themselves from him is actually laughable. That these rulers and authorities, they think they're so high and mighty, they think they're so powerful that they could come together and in their collective power shake off God's authority is a laughable idea. It just is not going to happen. I mean, it, we don't get tornadoes here, but I grew up in Minnesota, and I didn't grow up in Minnesota. I spent a short period of time of my life in Minnesota. And while I was there, I got to see two tornadoes. They weren't big ones, but it was pretty sweet to, to see some tornadoes. And uh, tornadoes, if you're familiar with them, they, they go typically from a scale of one to five. Five being the strongest, it's over 200 miles per hour. And that does absolutely devastating damage. I mean, it, it can take down high rises. So those, those tornadoes are wildly strong. But it would be like these kings and these rulers coming together to try to shake off God's authority, God's power. It's like a, a tribe or a little flock, I don't know what we're of chipmunks going up before a Category 5 tornado and collectively holding up their hands and trying to reenact the Fellowship of the Ring with Gandalf saying in their own little chipmunk voice, you shall not pass. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think about because... It's ridiculous. We know what's going to happen to those chipmunks when that tornado gets there. And I'm an animal lover, but you can use your imagination. But look, God is far more dangerous than a tornado. And the rulers of the earth will know that when he responds to them. When he responds to their foolish acts of trying to shake off his authority. He responds with laughter. But in verse 5, he also responds with wrath. So today, friends, God is kind and God is patient toward those who reject him. But that kind patience will one day run out. It will one day no longer be there. Romans 2, 4 says that, that God's kindness and his patience toward us is meant to lead us to repentance. Someday that, that patience is going to come to an end. And rather than showing patience, he's going to pour out his wrath against all those who have rejected him, all those who have pushed against his authority. And his enemies, friends, will be absolutely terrified. So do me a favor. I told you I was going to have you flip a little bit. Turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. If you're new to looking at a Bible, that's going to be toward the end of your Bible. Go to the very last book of your Bible. This is Revelation. And look for the big number 6. That's what we're looking at. And we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. Big number six, look for the little number 15. That's where we're going to start. And this is at the opening of what's called the sixth seal. So we read this and, and consider this in conjunction with what we just read in verse five of Psalm two. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, 
hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? David writing this thousands of years before says there is going to be a day when God's wrath and his fury is poured out on those rulers and on all people who reject his authority. And in Revelation 6, we see this is, in fact, going to take place. So the answer to to question 17, uh, to the question in verse 17 in Revelation 6 of, of who can stand, the answer is only those who have zero trace of any rebellion against God. That's who can stand. Those who have zero trace, not just a little trace or not just the majority of their life is not rebellion against God. It's those who have zero trace of rebellion against God, which, which friends, I'm just going to break the news to you, is none of us. So in addition to pouring out his wrath on all those who have rebelled against God and who have any trace of rebellion against him, God provides a king. See that in verse 6. Where God responds to these rulers and these kings by placing a king of his own on the throne. And look, God's chosen king does not reject God's authority. Instead, he submits to it. So the question is, who is that king? Well, there's kind of a twofold answer here. So at the time of writing, David was referring to himself. He was referring to himself as God's anointed king. Remember, Nathan, the prophet, had just come to him and said, hey, your throne's going to be established forever. And so David's like, yeah, this is amazing. I'm God's chosen king. I've been anointed. The prophet Samuel literally anointed David in, in 1 Samuel 16. And David's referred elsewhere in the Psalms as the anointed. You can look at Psalm 18 or Psalm 89. And further, David wrote all of this just in, contextually right after Nathan came. And so as we keep reading the Bible, though, what we realize is that God's chosen king didn't just stop at David. In fact, it was it was ultimately fulfilled in the greater David, Jesus Christ. And so David, follow me here, David submitted to God's authority, and so God placed him on the throne. But David submitted imperfectly. The greater David, the one who was from David's line, submitted perfectly. And so God established his throne eternally. And it's only in Jesus where we see zero trace of any rebellion against God. Even David, as a good king, had rebellion against God in various aspects of his life. Jesus is the only one with zero trace of rebellion. And so kings and kingdoms, rulers and nations, they've always rejected God's authority. In response to their rebellion, what does God do? He sets a greater king on the throne. Okay, all you kings and rulers, you want to reject me? I'm going to set my own king. On the throne. We see it in David in the short term, and we see it in Christ fulfilled in the long term. And all people will one day bow down to King Jesus. If they refuse to bow down in this life, then they'll be treated like the rest of God's enemies who receive his wrath and his fury. The wrath and fury we see in verse 5. But, but, Here's the good news, and this is what we all need to hear because none of us have zero trace of rebellion against God. We all have some of it. But if anyone would bow willingly in this life, they'll be welcomed into God's kingdom as a protected citizen. 
No king, no nation, no ruler, no people group. None of them have perfectly submitted to the authority of God except Jesus. Which is why Jesus' kingdom and not all the rest of the kingdoms and, and nations, and those will not con- continue to be here when Christ ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. But because Jesus was the only perfect one, the only perfect king, him and his kingdom will continue on forever. And it's the citizens of that kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom, that will be spared from the wrath and fury that we read of in verse 5. So God responds to the people's rebellion with laughter, with wrath, and with a king. But he doesn't just establish a king. He then also establishes that king's kingdom. So look with me, if you will, verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 2. Turn back there. And it's there we'll see what God will do. Now, notice the speaker changes in verse 6. So in verse, in verse 7. In verse 6, it was God speaking. But now in verse 7, it's David speaking. He says, I'll tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, I alluded to this just a minute ago, but it's important for us to remember that when we see biblical prophecy, that there's oftentimes a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. So short-term, David is God's anointed king. Um, If you'd like, you can turn to Psalm 89. In fact, do that for me. Turn to Psalm 89. It'll be helpful. So I want to look at three verses there. Just quickly in passing, but I think it's going to help us understand what's going on here in Psalm 2. So in Psalm 89, look at verse 20. God says, I have found David... My servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. Then look, look at verse 26. So we see David is God's anointed in verse 20. But now look at verse 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So we see that this, this biblical prophecy is taking place short term with David. Now, long term, we see that it's Jesus. Jesus is God's anointed king. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts 13. Go over to Acts 13. So in Acts 13, Acts comes right after the Gospels. See Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts uh, 13, starting verse 32. We read this. And consider this. In light of Psalm 2. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So to summarize all that, in short term, Psalm 2 is about David. But long term, it's about Jesus. David was called God's son. Jesus is God's son. David's throne was established over Israel. Jesus' throne is eternally established over the true Israel, all Christians. 
And because of David's faithfulness, Israel enjoyed temporary victories over their enemies. But because of Jesus' faithfulness, his perfect faithfulness, true Israel, all Christians get to experience eternal victory over their great enemy, sin and death. So when we read verses 8 and 9 about Jesus ruling over all the nations and dashing them to pieces like a potter's vessel, that should teach, teach us at least a few things. First, that nations and kingdoms as we know them won't exist in the new heavens and the new earth. The only kingdom remaining will be the kingdom of God. And so therefore our hope shouldn't be in the nations or in political parties or organizations. Our hope should be in Christ and his coming kingdom. Now that doesn't mean don't be a faithful citizen. Don't disengage. I'm not at all saying that. Love your neighbor. And one of the ways you love your neighbor is by supporting just laws and policies that, that lead to their benefit and, and their good. But don't put your ultimate hope in this nation or in any other nation. Second thing it should teach us is that all roads lead to Jesus ruling over all the earth. Therefore, don't resist him. Don't resist this king. We see what happens. His wrath and fury comes against those who resist him. He dashes them to pieces. And so in verses 1 through 3, we, we see that we naturally resist God. In verses 4 through 6, we see that God establishes a king who does not resist him. And then in verses 7 through 9, we see that God now establishes that king's kingdom by giving him the whole earth. And so now, in verses 10 through 12, we see how the nations should respond. Look at me in verse 10. Now, therefore, again, common phrase, when you see a therefore, what's it there for? Here's why. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So how should the nations respond? They should pledge their allegiance to God's son. They should honor him as king. It says, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kings and people are called to hear God's warning and to act accordingly. It's one of the things um, that we do, it's easy to look over, uh, is to put a question from a catechism in our bulletin. So if you would actually turn in your bulletin there, go to, go to verse seven, and we just match it up with the week that it is. There are 52 questions in the catechism that we use, and we just match it up with each week. So we're coming to the end of the year, so you can see we're on question 49, but it's fitting, and the Lord's providence, he's placed it here. But one of the ways that kings and rulers can be wise is by acknowledging what is said here in question 49. So the question is, where is Christ now? The answer is Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. Friends, don't continue to rebel. Jesus is on the throne now, and he is coming again to judge and renew the whole earth, and his kingdom will forever be established. All those who are rebelling against him will be destroyed. 
They'll endure his just wrath and fury for all eternity in hell. I would encourage you, do not push yourself against God's authority. Submit to him. He offers it out freely. Kiss the son. Now, that, that phrase, kiss the son, could seem strange, but what it is, is it's, it's a sign that signifies submission and loyalty. So this is often done by kissing the hand or the ring of a king. So it sometimes takes place after wars or after a battle, a conquered town or village. Uh, those who survived, the, the king would come through as their new king and they had the opportunity to, to kiss his hand or kiss the ring or kiss the scepter to show our allegiance is now to you. You've conquered us. We submit ourselves to you. If you've ever seen a mob movie like The Godfather, you've probably seen a, a scene where the mob boss, someone comes into his office and kisses the ring. That's where we get that. It's acknowledging one's inferior position. And all those who do that with King Jesus, who acknowledge their inferior position and show honor and allegiance and loyalty to him, they're blessed. Verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Those who trust this king for protection, they receive eternal blessing. And to more fully understand this, we actually have to look at Psalm 2 in the context of Psalm 1. So look there at Psalm 1. So when you put these two psalms together, we see that they're bookended with a blessing. The first verse of Psalm 1, blessed is the man. And then we see the last verse of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, who is the blessed man in Psalm 1? The one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but delights in the law of the Lord. Who is this man? Who is this blessed man? Well, the only one to do this perfectly was God's anointed son, Jesus Christ. God's anointed one rules over all creation. Therefore, honor him as your king. He is the blessed man. It's in him that we need to take refuge. And if we take refuge in him, we will inherit eternal blessing and protection. So friends, willingly and joyfully submit your life to this king, King Jesus. Now, what does that look like? So if you're a Christian here today, that means to seek his kingdom first. Jesus in Matthew 6, 33. It means to prioritize God's kingdom over your own. It also means to be aware of the ways that you're tempted to reject God's authority, to fight against those temptations where you're tempted to reject God's authority or the authority that he has placed over you. It's to set up precautions in your life to guard you from going against what God commands. That's what it looks like to kiss the sun if you are a Christian. But if you're not a Christian, what does that look like for you? Well, it means acknowledging that you have sinned, that there is a trace of rebellion against God within you, and that you, because there is some rebellion against you, and because of what God is going to do against all those who rebel against him, you are in a position of needing to be saved from that wrath and from that fury. It's acknowledging that humbly, saying, you know what? I am a sinner. I recognize I'm not perfect. I've gone against God. And if what Psalm 2 says is true, then there's a day that if I stay in this rebellion— that I will face God's fury and wrath for all eternity. It's acknowledging that you are a sinner and that you do need to be saved from that wrath and from that fury. 
And it's placing your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who saves you, the one whose payment on the cross was sufficient to pay for all your sin, past, present, and future. It's submitting to Jesus as your king, the one who, whose commands you follow. In Luke 4, Jesus says this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Friends, true liberty, true freedom come by submitting to the Lord's anointed one. And according to Acts, according to Luke here, Jesus Christ is that anointed one. Surrender to him and experience eternal victory over enemies, our great enemy, sin and death. Charles Spurgeon, he puts it this way. He just always puts it better than me. So let's just see what he has to say. He says, glory be to God. We know the end of the war. The great dragon shall be cast out and forever destroyed, while Jesus and they who are with him shall receive the crown. Let us sharpen our swords tonight and pray the Holy Spirit to nerve our arms for the conflict. Never battle so important, never crown so glorious. Every man to his post, you warriors of the cross, and may the Lord tread Satan under your feet shortly. Friends, the Lord is coming soon to tread his enemies under his feet. If you're submitting to him, if you're submitting to King Jesus as your king, you will experience that victory alongside him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for setting your anointed king over all creation. Jesus, thank you for securing your throne for being the faithful king, for being the faithful one that we have failed to be. Thank you for showing mercy by giving us an opportunity to repent and to show our allegiance to you. God, I pray that those who are in here today that have not done that, that are still in rebellion against you, that today would be the day that they surrender to your lordship. God, we pray that we would be a people who are known as being people who submit joyfully and willingly to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we pray that that would be a compelling witness to those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.